Welcome to From What If to What Next. I'm Rob Hopkins. I'll be your host for the next little while. If you're listening to this, you're either a subscriber at patreon.com, in which case you have already taken the bold and brilliant step of subscribing and I'm eternally grateful to you, or you're listening to it a little later, in which case you're equally welcome and I'd love to invite you to consider subscribing at www.patreon.com slash from what if to what next, as it makes all that we do here possible. Thank you. These are times when many people are feeling deeply bewildered. It feels like those with their hands on the levers of power at whatever level aren't using that power and responsibility very well, while all around them the evidence that their approach isn't working piles up. Disillusionment with politics is growing, leading to the growth of populism and belief in conspiracy theories like QAnon. Many people have given up on the political process, cynical as to its ability to affect real change in the tiny window of time we have left in which to affect it. Battle lines are often drawn too early, ramped up and radicalised online, and hope of any real dialogue with those in charge feels increasingly elusive and pointless. And yet, if the existing levers of power were actually to be used in a good way, incredible things could happen. Our question today was sent in by subscriber Elke Himmelman, who wrote, What if we could use our integrative power to reach decision makers in any relevant position for the changes that are needed? Could it be that being able to talk to, convince and win people in charge over might be possible? Is it a learnable skill? How might we become better at it? All of which leads us to a question that underpins today's podcast. My slight reworking of Elka's question. What if we had the skills and abilities to talk to decision makers and convince them to act differently? I'm delighted to be joined by two amazing guests with a great deal to offer us in exploring this question. Scylla Elworthy is three times Nobel Peace Prize nominee for her work with Oxford Research Group to develop effective dialogue between nuclear weapons policymakers worldwide and their critics. She now leads the business plan for peace to help prevent violent conflict and build sustainable peace throughout the world because it is possible based on her latest books The Business Plan for Peace, Building a World Without War and The Mighty Heart, How to Transform Conflict. Scylla founded Peace Direct in 2002 to fund, promote and learn from local peace builders in conflict areas, was awarded the Niwano Peace Prize in 2003 and advised Peter Gabriel, Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Sir Richard Branson in setting up The Elders. Her TED Talk on non-violence has been viewed by over one and a half million people. Robert Phillips founded Jericho in 2013 after a 25-year career at the top of the global communications industry. He was and still is determined to provide a robust alternative to the many consultancies peddling myths about trust and purpose and relying on tired, if not broken, models of public engagement. The founding principles of Jericho – activism, accountability, participation and dissent – 
He co-founded legendary consumer brands agency Jackie Cooper PR in 1987 and having sold the business went on to become UK and then EMEA chief executive of Edelman, the world's largest public relations firm. Robert is the author of Citizen Renaissance in 2008 and trust me, PR is dead in 2015. And I love that title. And has started work on the trust delusion and how to avoid it. He recently stepped down after seven years as a visiting professor at Cass Business School, University of London, and is an acclaimed keynote speaker. He leads Jericho's work on responsible tax, good work, social justice in tech, housing, energy and infrastructure, and he's the chair of Jericho Conversations. Welcome both. Thank you. Good to be with you. Good to be here. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I'd love to start, if I may, with an exercise we always use to start these podcasts. I'd like to invite you both to close your eyes and get comfortable. And I'd like to invite anyone listening to do so too, unless, of course, you're currently operating a crane on a building site somewhere, perhaps best not. I'd like you to imagine that we are about to do a spot of time travelling. In a moment, I will turn on my time machine assembled from various things I had lying around the house and we will use it to travel forward 10 years in time to 2030. As we leave 2020, we pass through years of remarkable transition and transformation, years when anything felt possible, when a shared sense of purpose grew and the 2030 we step into as we arrive is a world which is transformed in many ways. It's now a zero carbon, more resilient, more equal, fair, just, biodiverse, delightful world. And it is one in which we have created a culture, a political system, an education system in which many, many more people now have the skills and abilities to talk to decision makers and convince them to act differently far more than was the case 10 years ago. I'd like to invite you both to describe how such a world looks, sounds, feels, tastes and smells to you. How is it qualitatively different from the world you left behind? Can you describe what you see as you take a walk around? Robert? Thank you, Rob. I mean, I'd like to take you on a walk or to join me for a walk in Lowestoft, the most easterly town on the coast of uh, England and the United Kingdom. Um, and I think it's about to undergo where we are now a huge transformation. And in 10 years' time, it will be a much more vibrant and, and magical place. And I think it speaks to what is possible in terms of finding collaborative ways to bring decision makers into the conversation and decision making process with real people. And it's at that confidence point that important things can happen. So the current issues in this town of Lowestoft is that it has the highest levels of anxiety in the UK, higher than the average of 35%, 45% of people in Lowestoft show constant signs of anxiety right now. The average income is 17% lower than anywhere else in the east of England. It is 73% below average for skills and training. So this is a town, because of the collapse of its manufacturing industries and fishing fleets, that is in some ways described as one of those sink towns or seaside sink towns that have characterised a bifurcated uh, and dysfunctional Britain. But the future vision is really quite powerful and magical and will be, in 10 years' time, as we walk through Lowestoft, we'll be able to celebrate an achievement in levelling up not just places, but people also. 
And I'm speaking because I'm involved in a project that brings together politicians and business leaders and policymakers and real people and residents and business leaders and the art sector and the creative sector and new thinkers. And all this is based on being able to reimagine how we use energy, energy through wind, through solar, through hydrogen, energy through nuclear, to work together towards a net zero carbon future that in some ways protects, or in every way rather, protects the magic and the special place it is for those who know it, the heritage coast on the east of England that stretches, if you like, from Felixstowe all the way up to Lowestoft and takes in places like Southwold and Alborough and Walberswick and Dunwich and many of the magical places that those who've travelled around the country will know and brings them into a, a new world, protecting the heritage because of the work that we've all done together to join up the thinking around what sort of energy supply we want and how investment in the energy sector allows us to walk through Lowestoft in 10 years' time and to find that we're suddenly in Britain's new windy city. And what was a sink town of epic proportions at the easternmost point on the British coast is now a British Bilbao with its own version of the Guggenheim Museum, its own art centre established in the town hall, which was otherwise derelict. New, wonderful artist studios and artisanal outlets producing and selling local produce because there has been this revival, because we stopped and we thought about how we can work together towards a net zero carbon future and how we made the east of England and Suffolk in particular, as you walk round it, the first net zero carbon county in the UK. For those familiar with literature, you may have actually taken this walk many years ago with uh, W.G. Siebel's Rings of Saturn, in which he also imagined many stories pertaining to the Suffolk coast. But in our new windy city in 10 years' time, we find a green innovation and skills hub based on new energy, where we brought together the best expertise in wind power, solar power, hydrogen power and nuclear power, who came together to disentangle the many knots that trouble the energy sector and worked in a joined up way with local residents to make sure that environmental protection was not just paramount, but essential and enforced. And that the new Green Innovation Skills Hub brought not just jobs, but also prosperity and a new way of thinking to the area. As a result of that, there was enshrined protection for an area of outstanding natural beauty and regulations to ensure that there would be no environmental damage. Lowestoft, 10 years from now, we walk through the gateway to the UK's wildest county and the first county national park in Britain, which is given over to rewilding, resealing, re reseeding and new natural habitats. Lowestoft in 10 years time is home of the slow food movement with new areas of artisanal products coming directly from the local environment and local surroundings. So we have slow food, which is celebrated actually at scale. Slow food, but faster buses and trains, thankfully. We have a restoration of arts and culture, and what started off as little niche exercises further down the coast that only the polite middle classes benefited from high tide and first light become national events. So there's a cultural renaissance and a city centre rejuvenation. And all of this, as we walk through Lowestoft in 10 years' time, is a victory for joined up thinking between those politicians, policymakers, business leaders, 
and real people, residents and visitors alike. This joined up thinking shows that it can be done and shows that the future is possible. And that's why actually my project that I'm currently running, our Heritage 2040, a new energy for the Suffolk coast, shows that we will be able to regenerate, we will be able to reimagine, and we will be able to celebrate a greener and more prosperous future. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Asila? Mm, well, and that was magnificent, Robert. I enjoyed that. I'm going to take you on a bird's eye view of some of the centres of policymaking in 2030. By that time, I trust that the huge groundswell of appreciation for the achievements of female presidents and prime ministers during the pandemic will have translated into a much fairer representation of women in senior decision-making global positions. So the faster this develops momentum, supported by men and women everywhere, the sooner we'll have a functioning United Nations. The abject failure of the UN Security Council to agree to stop the carnage in Syria was unforgivable, and it's now essential that the veto of the permanent five members of the Security Council be removed to allow the UN to do the job it was intended to do or entirely replace it. And this will include ensuring that the negotiations for the systematic dismantling of nuclear weapons will gain traction and have produced tangible, verifiable, mutual disarmament. This world can no longer afford the unbelievably dangerous situation where humanity has lived on a knife edge of really potential Armageddon for three quarters of a century. And younger citizens will be playing a key part ensuring that armed violence is prevented in their own countries. And to do this effectively, they've been trained uh, in both the political and military realities of their situation, combined with the skills now made widely available through online courses in inner development. In other words, to develop the capacity to get over and deal with their own fear and all the things that handicap us doing what we're meant to be doing. And so these young people will form an unstoppable momentum of organized peace builders worldwide, using every latest tool of communication and organization to ensure that their work is more effective and more respected than the use of force. We'll have a shift by that time of a huge trend in moving our money, our lives and our security away from the habit of war towards a manifest commitment to prevent violent conflict and build sustainable peace throughout the world. That'll happen through things like a massive divestment trend from the production of weapons, just as has happened with the divestment trend from fossil fuels into renewables. The same thing will happen because it will have appeared, especially during the pandemic, to be absurd to be developing weapons of massive destructive power when what we need is hospitals, vaccines, trained people in 
the prevention of further pandemics and so on. So in this age, what there will be, and I try to put this into words, a currency of compassion, which assigns a proper value to the work of those who care for others. The pandemic demonstrated that carers are among the least well-paid and the least protected of all UK health workers. And as well as being unjust, this is an absurdly unwise miscalculation, since it's now obvious that in future pandemics, the caring professions will need the most skilled, able and qualified people available. Economic policies will start to be based on abundance rather than scarcity, taking the natural world as a model to emulate. Just think of the acorn as a model. Education will be in cooperation rather than competition. Primary school children, for example, find cooperation a normal principle of interaction and develop their own games around it. And Education systems now exist and could be multiplied that avoid the current tendency to breed competitive behavior in testing and exams in post-primary education. Children everywhere will have been taught to grow vegetables. Any child over the age of four is captivated by what happens when a bean is put in a pot of compost and watered. And we did a big experiment in my area during lockdown, showing children uh, how to do this. And they so seized the opportunity that there was a series of online classes in growing their own food, with the result that their parents had to convert their backyards into vegetable farms. Now, circular thinking is what we're going to need, as opposed to the linear reasoning that has brought us to this point. I don't know if you've both read an incredible book by James Arbib and Tony Seaborn called Rethinking Humanity. It's only just come out, but it's absolutely brilliant in its entire analysis of what will have happened electronically to our communications, what will have happened to our natural resources and so on. But uh, it has a huge flaw in that it completely ignores the role of what I would call yin intelligence. The authors maintain, and I think they're right, that it is basically essence of yang or linear thinking that's contributed to the present crises. So is it not possible that yin intelligence could be the deciding factor in enabling decision-making to shift through the orders of magnitude that will be necessary in the kind of scenarios envisaged for the future. So I'll pause there and we'll get down to some brass tacks. Thank you. I was really struck with the idea of how much money we're spending on trying to destroy a virus of mass destruction at the same time as we're investing billions of money in weapons of mass destruction. Exactly. Madness. So I wonder if I might start with with hearing from both of you in terms of where you think we are today in regards to our what-if question. What's the state of health of our being able to engage with the systems that govern us and its ability to engage with us? Where are we at? Silla? 
Oh, goodness. What we hear on the news every day in this country you're talking about, are you? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's dire. Uh, nobody's listening. Uh, the kind of policies that are being made are either indigestible, absurd, or unclear. So it seems as though it's extremely difficult to introduce common sense into any of the policy making that's happening in Westminster at the moment. I'm not talking about the ministries themselves. They're still doing excellent work, but their political masters are in chaos, clearly. It's, um, it's not looking good. Well, I'd agree with that. It's not looking good. I think it's sometimes deliberate chaos to make it even worse. I'd like to think that we are in some sort of Gramscian interregnum where the old is not yet dead and the new is not yet fully born, uh, which was obviously written in his prison diaries in the late 20s and early 30s. Um, but clearly our political system is failing us. Uh, you know, we've, we've entered this world of sort of binary opinion where there's no room for nuance, where there's a sort of pseudo-legitimacy of lying, which is, is deeply troubling. But the reason that I took you on my walk through Lowestoft is because there are models where this can work, where we can, to add to uh, Silla's earlier points about compassion and community, also find ways of collaboration. And on a whole number of projects, and you kindly referenced them in the opening, Rob, that I've been working on and very carefully building over six or seven years in the UK mostly, whether it's on tax, whether it's on energy, whether it's on the future of work, you can build these collaborative models whereby by allowing dissent and nuance into the conversation, by creating safe spaces, these people to come together, you can get politicians of all hues, you can get regulators, you can get business leaders, you can get campaigners and civil society activists together to formulate better responses. And actually the our Heritage 2040 project that I referenced earlier started off as an exercise in more meaningful engagement between people who otherwise held opposing points of view, which was people advocating for the build of new nuclear facilities and those vehemently opposed to it. And by bringing them together and understanding that there had to be some sort of common ground, what came out of it was this project, uh, which is now called A New Energy for the Suffolk Coast, which shows what is possible because actually they turn their thinking towards collaboration and imagination rather than binary opposition. So I do hold out some hope on the Gramscian axis, whilst the old still has some way to go before dying, the new can be better born. Mm. Which leads us into our next question, which is if somebody listening to this podcast was planning to meet with their MP, local councillor or a key person in a position of power, what would your advice be as to how best to approach it? How best to get that person on your side? From your experience, can you share uh, your learnings, your insights, perhaps even offer us a little toolkit that we could take with us? I'd love to answer that question and base it really on, on what worked and all the mistakes we made in the 1980s and 1990s, which in the subject we were dealing with was probably just as difficult as it would be today. So what we learned that people had to do was, first of all, get to the core of the problem, really find out the facts of what it is you want to change. And then be aware of your own assumptions and your expectations and and get clear about how to express them, your 
your, if you like, what we've just been doing, a vision of how you would like things to be, to give it a bit of inspiration. And then you have to buckle down to the sort of nitty-gritty, the basic research to find out who is the person who has the power to bring about change. When we did it, there was no internet, but now it's incredibly easy. You can find wiring diagrams on the internet of who is who in a ministry or in a decision-making body, and you can probably even get their email. But before you make contact with them, deal with your own anger. Because so often when we're approaching somebody we think has power, what we unleash at them is uh, something that is tinged with vitriol, and they can feel it. That's automatically disabling any real communication. So that's quite substantial work that you often have to do. But also, you need a coherent, cogent proposal. If you want to do your first contact by email or by letter, I think letters still work very well, if they're very clear and say exactly what you want to talk about and why. That gives your policymaker or decision maker a chance to know whether it's worth their while actually meeting you. And then how you conduct the meeting when it happens is a whole other matter. And I'll let Robert have his say before I go on with that. Well, I, I agree with, with Scylla entirely, and I think the point about taking your anger and vitriol out and reflecting is, is absolutely the right one. I, I should say, though, that not all MPs are equal, and this is hugely problematic. I have a dreadful local MP, and I'm quite happy to say it, and it's Emily Thornbury, who was until recently the Shadow Foreign Secretary. Uh, and I'm someone who has a voice and, and has a reach and has a network uh, and has an ability to talk to politicians. In the course of last year, she absolutely refused to engage with me on the subject of Labour's anti-Semitism because she knew she was, if you like, on the side of wrong and was trying to defend the indefensible. And I found that lack of engagement deeply distressing, but also quite illustrative, I think, of where our, our politics is. I think it's also worth saying that we have to be careful for those of us that that are relatively senior in our professional fields or hold authority elsewhere, that we are very privileged in the way that we can try and find access. And I'm very struck by, as many have said, we may be all experiencing the same crisis, but our experience of it is not the same. You know, we're all in the same storm, but not in the same boat. And I think that also applies when you think about access to, to parliamentarians and otherwise. I sometimes think that we give too much power and authority and respect, if you like, to our parliamentarians. And, and, and going back to my Emily Thornbury point, there are some who are absolutely spectacular local MPs. A former colleague of mine, Edelman, Luke Pollard, who's now the Shadow Secretary of State for DEFRA, is probably, I think, the single best constituency MP in Parliament at the moment in Plymouth, Sutton and Devonport. And his concern and his knowledge and his ability to embrace local residents, local issues, local matters across the political spectrum, I think is really very rewarding. And I'll contrast him specifically with the sort of soundbite photocallism of an Emily Thornbury, and yet they sit within the same political party. I think that the point that I would try and stress as we move forward and trying to build back better is really to think not just what's in it for us, as individuals in terms of approaching uh, our MP or those in power, but what's in it for the community? 
because I do believe that radical decentralization, greater localism, more devolution of power is the way to break out this horrific logjam that we have within our dysfunctional politics at the moment. And so in approaching an MP or others to do so not on your own, but with others, with others that, that, that span different interest groups that have, if you like, different levels of mitigated anger, <laughs> to Silla's point, that share a common goal for the common good, that show what's good for community and to, to go forward not as an individual, but as a collective. So, so, so Silla, you get your first meeting, you in through the door of the first meeting, what happens? The first thing is to be able to listen as well as speak, but we have to be aware that the person you're meeting, and here I absolutely applaud everything that Robert's just said about MPs, but I'm very much of the persuasion, particularly now, that the, civil, the senior civil servants are feeling very isolated. They're getting a bad press often, even having to resign on principle. And I think they need our support. I really do. So... If it's um, an issue like the ones we've been discussing, I think it's a great idea to find out who is close to the top of the ministry that you want to talk to. And if you have something really tangible and practical to suggest that you try to see that person. A first sentence or two before you actually settle into the discussion is to make clear that you appreciate the situation of the person that you're meeting. I think that's vital because otherwise, again, they just feel bulldozed at and they close off quite rightly, I think. So show that you understand their situation, you understand the forces that may be at work, say that you hope that they're being kind enough to spend 20 minutes with you to hear what you have to say will be actually useful for them. And I think that that's a way to get a listening ear. If and when they do say something that's really interesting, my advice would be to repeat it back to them, to show them that you've heard what they said, because they're knowledgeable, they've got a point of view, you might not agree with it, but to repeat back to show that you are actually listening and that this is a real interaction rather than a lecture that's vitally important and i think that's what that's what got the best results in what we did with nuclear decision makers because when through meeting them in this way we managed to get them to agree to come to very off the record below the radar meetings with their opposite numbers from other countries we had the head of warhead design from los alamos laboratory meeting his opposite number it was always his i'm afraid in the then soviet union the only way to do that was to make a very informal and absolutely press proof environment in other words no communiques no list of participants nothing absolutely deniable meetings it had to be and that enabled people to come in and as soon as they realized that this was an old manor house. They had to make their own beds, put home-cooked cookies by their beds at night. It was very informal. And they began to realize they could take their jackets off and roll up their sleeves and actually listen to one another. I totally endorse that. I think this thing is key. And the creation of safe spaces for those dialogues to, to flourish is really important. I mean, I, I feel very humbled listening to Scylla because I've certainly not played on the stage of world peace uh, and in corporate world suddenly everything seems very 
myopic uh, and not unimportant, but certainly uh, less substantial than than some of the issues that Scylla has very bravely and courageously sort of fought for and with. But I think that that element of listening is hugely important and also bringing together, as I've said previously, dissenting voices so that they can find a way of, of collaborating. One very early example, and I, I think your point about having cookies by the bed and having to make your own beds, I think is exactly right, Scylla, because one of the early examples of the Responsible Tax Project which started off as a way to, to really think through some principles to, to find consensus across multiple jurisdictions between the political world and the corporate world, between tax directors and, and civil society activists. Uh, we held all those early meetings, not in atrium-rich glass and steel buildings, but in church halls. And we, we deliberately made it a very informal and unthreatening space for those conversations to, to take place. And I remember in the in the very formative stages of the project, there was one moment where the chief tax officer of a FTSE 100, probably FTSE 10 company, the civil society campaigner turns to the chief tax officer and said, you have all the power. You don't understand. You have all the power. And the chief tax officer turned back quick as a flash and said, no, we think you have all the power. And at that moment, they connected in a way that was, was really rather special. And, and it broke this sort of conflicting dynamic that was there and actually led to what became the part of a much greater dialogue and to points made previously that we were then able to build a much more consensual and collaborative path forward. And, and what does all of this tell us about, about leadership? What are the qualities of good leadership in order to move this forward? Well, within that, if I can just jump in, because it's a personal passion point, you know, um, first of all, there are way too many pale male and stale leaders, which is a point that Silla was intimating earlier in terms of those conversations. There's often way too much ego in the room uh, as a result of that. But fundamentally, there's an inability and unwillingness to show vulnerability. And there are too many leaders who schooled on decades of Harvard Business School orthodoxy and sort of CEO them think they have to wear a super magic superpower cape the whole time where they have the answer to everything. So one of the things we found with all of our projects and we encourage all of our clients to be able to show is vulnerability in the sense that be able to say, I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not going to make it up. I, I you know, you tell me, <laughs> can we explore this together? Come on, let's help one another. I need to listen to Silla's point. I need to listen to you better to understand. So vulnerability and listening and dissent all go together, and that will make for a much better leader, I think. I so agree with what Rob has just said. He's got it absolutely nailed there. I endorsed the whole thing. I would just add some of the qualities of what we've been calling yin intelligence as opposed to yang. It's, this isn't a gender issue. It's available equally to men and to women, yin intelligence. But one of the main qualities of it, which Robert touched on, is empathy. In other words, that we actually can connect with other people at a different level than just the mind. Uh, because the mind is where one tends to operate as I'm right and you're wrong. Whereas if we can actually listen to people and listen so actively that we can repeat back to them what they said and what we think the feelings were behind what they said blows their mind that they've been listened to like that 
and that really opens communication. The other characteristics and qualities that I think are important, obviously compassion goes one step further than empathy because compassion literally means to suffer together. And so that means that when you're confronted by another person who's suffering, you feel motivated to do something, to take action, to help. And then uh, an odd one that I'd include is intuition. Because when I've overridden my intuition, I've made the worst mistakes of my life. And I, <laughs> I'd be happy to describe them, but they're embarrassing. You know, it's, it's, it's fantastic to hear you say that. I, I've so often said, I'm sorry to interrupt, I've so often said to people, I, I use the word instinct rather than intuition, I, I've said the same thing, that whenever I've made a tragic business decision, and trust me, I've made many, um, it's always because I've gone against my instinct. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think that's so right, and it's something we hardly dare mention, isn't it? Well, I, th- I think also, Silla, that does, that does point to this sort of cult of managerialism that has crept in, not even crept in, swept in um, over the past 15 or 20 years, that everything has to be done in a certain way, in a rote way, if you like. It's the same reason why our children at school are not allowed to express opinions in history essays, because there's suddenly a right way and a wrong way of answering a history question, which is entirely preposterous. And, and that leads to a sort of McKinsey-esque sort of obsession with just-in-time planning, which means that we end up with no personal protective equipment at the time of crisis or hand sanitizers because everyone's micromanaged it down to the last moment of just-in-time rather than just-in-case. So there's there's no fluidity of thought, there's no room or richness for for ethical or philosophical thinking. It's down to this sort of contained managerialism and then the, the leaders get trapped within that. And that somehow they become odd ones out and therefore they don't like to go with it because they feel that they are countering what is expected of them. Whereas in fact what they're doing is entirely misguided and wrong and they're not trusting their instinct and they're not thinking philosophically and they're not looking for nuance. And those leaders who emerge as better leaders are those who do listen, who do show compassion, who are more servant orientated in the way that they think. So I I wholly endorse everything you've been saying. Mm We're just we're just seeing <clears throat> yesterday the drawing to a close of two weeks of Extinction Rebellion in London at the time of recording this podcast, and we've seen Black Lives Matter extraordinary phenomenon around the world. How should movements balance being confrontational and adversarial enough to press for change, whilst also being able to keep dialogue open and be able to engage in conversations with those holding positions of power that might unlock the change they're seeking? How to manage that balance, Robert? Well, um, how long have you got? I mean, I I think, (laughs) um, I mean, I think the most important thing, and actually it does speak to the, the question of leadership, because we've been doing some work on race, I've long argued that we need to tackle both faith and race at work in the open. And of course, business leaders are terrified of doing so. And what the follow-up to the Black Lives Matter movement and the killing of George Floyd led to is a paralysis in leadership. A paralysis in leadership, either people ended up just doing tick box things for the right reasons, but they were just tick box things, or just not doing anything at all because they just didn't know how to have the conversation. Which does go back to sort of earlier points about listening, but also about the culture that you build within an organisation, so that people can really hear from those with lived experiences, 
And I get it. If you're a 50-something white male CEO, it's very difficult to try and organize for, for how you should deal with race, especially if you ignored the issue or let the issue pass you by for the past 5, 10, 15, or 20 years of your leadership. And, and I think that that's why listening is important and listening to those with lived experiences is really important. I agree with that. However, the thing I'd like to point out is that what Robert was talking about, the kind of Harvard Business School, McKinsey-esque attitude, is quite bullying for people who are trying to make a point and very dismissive. I had many experiences of being basically told to shut up and I stood up and said something in a, me- in a meeting which was very largely military and MOD and so on. But in order to do that, we have to learn to take a stand in a way that is strong enough to get the point across and actually has, I mean, even it comes down to how you stand. I think it's really important if you have to make a point in a meeting that's difficult, even in a, in, in a small meeting, is to actually stand up because then you've got your feet rooted to the ground, which is vital, and a straight line up through your body to whatever you regard as a higher intelligence. And that gives you gravitas. It also means that one's voice, my voice often used to, when I was really anxious, my voice would get all squeaky and I'd talk too fast and I'd make too many points all after one another. And we have to ground it so that when we do say something that's important, it come across with that, the seriousness with which we feel it. Um, And breathing before you make a stand is vital, absolutely vital, because that gets oxygen to the brain, which otherwise is left stranded if we're very nervous. I think that's right. And I I think I was just reflecting as a, how do we make sure that people's voices are legitimately heard? All people's voices are legitimately heard. And, And I do think that now is absolutely the time for more citizen assemblies to come to the fore to really make sure that we can speak with a more powerful collective voice on the issues that matter. Interesting, we've been doing a big piece of work on on attitudes of 16 to 24-year-olds to the current crisis. And so we will talk to them about the need about jobs and skills, about employment, about mental health and well-being, the sort of stuff that business leaders tend to worry about and think they need to worry about. Talk to 16 to 24-year-olds and they'll come back to you. Issue number one is housing, issue number two is race, and issue number three is transphobia. So we have to be able to align not just the big issues themselves and not get distracted by the PR around them, but also what people are really thinking within these issues and what their priorities are and what their anxieties are. And and and, and, and Silla rightly says, always take a deep breath and, and a couple of steps back before going in. But a lot of you know anxiety levels are exceptionally high and people are effectively metaphorically and realistically short of breath because of them thank you both Uh, do you have any last thoughts in relation before we draw to a close in relation to our question what if we had the skills and abilities to talk to decision makers and convince them to act differently that i haven't yet asked you the right question for anything anything left unsaid that you'd like to bring to that question well i honestly think it needs to be learned it's it's a training and for want of advertising, I'd, we've just put together a 10-part course called The Mighty Heart, How to Transform Conflict. And I think 
uh, everybody's desperate for ways to deal with the conflicts that are emerging now and we have to learn how to do it we need the tools and the skills and to have a chance to practice them with other people that's what i would say i think the ability is there but the frameworks aren't so it's not as though there aren't many brilliant leaders up and down the country whose voice is not being heard in all sorts of organizations i come across them every day as i'm sure you do and, and Scylla does too whether it's in activist groups youth groups people campaigning for race equity people thinking deeply about the ethics of technology and so on and so forth they're out there. What we don't have is the mechanism to let those voices be heard. And that's why, that's what the reform of democracy really needs to be about. And it needs to make sure that we, as leaders, have a responsibility to create those frameworks, and those channels, to give access to those without voice, but with important views, uh, to those in supposed authority. Brilliant. Thank you both so much. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a delight to have you both. Thanks, Rob. Thank you for inviting us. Thanks for doing it. And so my thanks to everyone for listening and to Ben Adicott for production and theme music and see you next time. <laughs>